Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar.com. In this week's podcast, Susan Javinsky highlights three dividend growth funds. Alex Bryan reveals areas of the market that have performed worse than others during the economic downturn. Christine Benz offers ideas for forming and maintaining healthy investment habits. Damian Conover puts a spotlight on the most undervalued industry in the healthcare sector. Eric Jacobson explains why today's market situation is different than it was in 2008. And IRA expert Ed Slot discusses converting from a traditional IRA to a Roth. Let's get started. Susan Jabinski highlights three dividend growth funds. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski from Morningstar.com. There's a lot to like about dividend growth stocks. Not only do they pay out income on a regular basis, but they also tend to be highly profitable, financially healthy companies. Today, we're taking a look at some of our favorite funds that invest in dividend growers. Vanguard Dividend Growth has held its own in the coronavirus sell-off thus far. Since the S&P 500 index peaked on February 19th, the fund's 26.3% loss is 3.1 percentage points better than the S&P 500 and edges the fund's NASDAQ U.S. Dividend Achievers Select Index by about three basis points. The fund's universe of growth stocks as measured by its index, though, peaked on February 14th. And since that date through March 16th, the fund is five basis points behind its benchmark. Its lone energy holding Exxon held it back versus its benchmark, as did Abbott Laboratories, which it did not own. The fund's long-term record, though, remains consistently superior to that of the benchmark. T. Rowe Price Dividend Growth is run by a veteran manager. Tom Huber invests for the long term and looks for companies with durable competitive advantages, ample cash flow, and sound management teams. The resulting portfolio is diversified across sectors, with financially healthy firms able to sustain or grow their dividends. The avoidance of more speculative names has led to improved downside protection. Since Huber's early 2000 start through February 2020, the strategy's 7.5% annualized gain beat the S&P 500 index by two percentage points. It earns a Morningstar analyst rating of silver as of July 8, 2019. Spider S&P Dividend ETF is a solid income strategy that targets companies that have consistently grown their dividends over the long term, which should reduce exposure to companies with weak fundamentals. While there are cheaper index alternatives available, the fund's fee is competitive versus its category peers, and our confidence in its approach supports a Morningstar analyst rating of silver. The fund fully replicates the S&P High Yield Dividend Aristocrats Index, which includes stocks from the S&P 1500 index that have raised dividend payments for at least 20 consecutive years. The fund's focus on firms that are financially healthy enough to grow their payouts favors profitable companies with durable competitive advantages and shareholder-friendly management teams. It then weights these stocks by yield, which increases its value tilt and boosts current income. Chasing yield might introduce riskier stocks into the mix. Firms sporting higher yields might have weak fundamentals and high dividend payout rates, leaving a small buffer to protect their dividends should earnings fall. However, this fund's dividend growth screen mitigates exposure to these firms. State Street Global Advisors charges a fee of 35 basis points for this fund, a fraction of the 85 basis points charged by the median large value fund. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill, or visit Morningstar.com slash Alexa. Now, Alex Bryan reveals areas of the market that have performed worse than others during the economic downturn. 
Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. The recent sell-off has left few assets unscathed, but some pockets of the market have been hit harder than others. Joining me to discuss these areas that have performed worse during the recent market downturn is Alex Bryan. He's Morningstar's Director of Passive Strategies Research for North America. Alex, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Alex, let's talk about the pockets of the market that have really borne the brunt of the sell-off, starting with U.S. stocks. So in the U.S. stock market, uh, smaller cap stocks and value stocks have tended to underperform their large cap and growth counterparts. So if you think about the academic research that suggests over the very long term, you would expect small cap stocks and value stocks to give you higher returns. In this market environment, we've seen the exact opposite, uh, which suggests that there is an element of risk here that a lot of investors have exposure to because a lot of investors are leaning into those stocks in order to boost their expected returns. So let's drill into some of the reasons that smaller cap and value stocks have really borne the brunt of this sell-off. So a lot of the underperformance for value has to do with some sector biases that a lot of value strategies have. So they tend to lean into uh, sectors like energy, financial services, and industrials that have been hit particularly hard. So energy stocks um, have been um, hurt by the price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Uh, they've also experienced a collapse in demand uh, as people have started to stay in more in response to COVID-19. Financial services stocks uh, have been hurt as interest rates have come down, which has compressed their net interest margins. And industrials, of course, are, are very cyclical, so um, they've been hurt as well. But on top of all that, a lot of value names were facing somewhat poor business prospects heading into this crisis. So this is just exaggerating some of the uh, the problems that a lot of these companies have had, and a lot of them are not as well positioned to weather the storm as some of their um, their faster growing counterparts. So I think that's a big part of why we've seen value underperform. As far as small caps, um, a lot of these names tend to be more cyclical to begin with. Um, they are more highly levered to the U.S. economy than some of their larger cap counterparts, uh, and a lot of them are uh, less likely to have durable competitive advantages. So uh, less cushion, less cash to uh, to cushion the blow uh, during this uh, relatively tough time. So I think all those things have led to this uh, quite substantial underperformance that we've seen in those areas. Okay, so that's the U.S. equity market. Let's talk about the bond market, some areas that have really struggled there. So not surprisingly, uh, credit risk has really, really underperformed. So high yield bonds have just tanked as credit spreads have, have blown out. Um, and that's not surprising. We tend to see this anytime there's uh, a risk of a recession that, that crops up because the risk of credit downgrades increase, um, particularly if you think about energy stocks. Uh, a lot of those are, are kind of on the bubble of uh, triple B rated securities, and a lot of them are at risk of being downgraded below investment grade. Um, but we've also seen corporates, investment grade corporates, um, substantially underperform as a lot of investors are really moving out of risky assets and, and loading up on treasuries, um, particularly long-term treasuries, those have done quite well as interest rates have, have fallen. So uh, anything with credit risk has really underperformed. Okay. So how should investors respond to this? Should they lean into this and potentially look at some of these beaten down areas or retreat from them? What, what's your advice about how they should approach that question? That's a great. That's a great question. So I, I think it's important to keep in mind that these risks that these areas of the market are facing are still very much there. 
Uh, the market isn't making this stuff up. Um, I would be very hesitant to double down on these areas of the market now. Uh, I think the best course of action for most investors is to really just stick to a broadly diversified core stock and bond strategy that gives you exposure to these areas in the market because there will come a time when they recover, but uh, there's always a chance that things can get worse before they get better. So I think the best course is just stick with a broadly diversified fund. Don't worry about trying to time your exposure to these areas of the market because they are loaded with risk. Um, but I wouldn't worry about um, you know trying to, to sell out of them now because they've already taken quite a big beating. So um, you know the best course of action, I guess, is is just to not worry about it. Stay diversified. That's your best line of defense. And it seems like if you were planning on doing some rebalancing either soon or later this year, that would naturally lead you to top up some of these areas that have gone down the most. That's right. So if you're if you're looking at rebalancing your portfolio now. Um, you might actually be able to, to take advantage of some attractive valuations. But again, I wouldn't be overweighting these areas of the market at this stage. Okay, Alex, always great to get your perspective. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room. Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable, be informed. Next, Christine Benz offers ideas for forming and maintaining healthy investment habits. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar. We've all been hearing about the importance of cultivating and sticking to healthy habits amid the current coronavirus crisis. Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance, Christine Benz, thinks it's a great time to put some healthy financial habits in place, too. She's here to discuss that topic with us. Christine, thanks for joining me today. Susan, it's great to be here. Now, Morningstar's Director of um, Behavioral Finance, Steve Wendell, recently wrote about habits um, in general during times like this. What, from your perspective, are the value of habits right now? Well, one of the things that Steve talked about that really resonated with me was this idea of how it really helps your brain at times like this to have habits in place. And the basic idea is that if you have these habits that are so ingrained that you almost forget whether you did them or not, like shutting the garage door, whatever, these things that you do on autopilot, the positive side effect of having those habits is that it can let your brain focus on the work it really needs to do. And so I think that that can be really valuable with respect to our financial lives. If you have certain habits that you know will lead to good outcomes that you can kind of put on autopilot, you can focus on more value-added financial tasks. So what are some financial habits that maybe we should be thinking about today that can help us down the line? One I've been thinking an awful lot about is this idea of mindful spending. And I started thinking a lot about it with respect to some of these fire bloggers, the financial independence retire early people who are big believers by and large in being very deliberate about what you spend your money on. And the good news is um, we're going through this period where we're all sort of in a, a forced reduction in spending, that we're not spending much money apart from food and basic living expenses these days. Some activities that we might otherwise be spending money on have been curtailed. So Jonathan Clements, the financial blogger, was writing recently that he thinks it's really a great time for us all to take stock of 
which of those expenditures, which of those outings that cost money do we really miss, and which do we not miss so much? Keep tabs on those. Think about those when structuring how to deploy your funds in the future when you are able to pick and choose the activities that you'd like to spend money on. So I would think going along with this idea of mindful spending would be developing a habit of therefore being able to save more. That's right. And certainly not everyone is in a position to save more right now. Some people work in industries that have been directly or indirectly impacted by the crisis, and they may have been laid off or furloughed. They don't have discretionary funds to set aside. But people who still have steady paychecks to rely on should look at whether they can translate the saving they're doing today into some sort of automated saving going forward. The best way to do that is to put those savings contributions, those investment contributions on autopilot to commit to an extra $100 a month, an extra $500 a month, whatever you can afford to do to help bump up your savings on an ongoing basis. I've been hearing from colleagues who have bumped up their 401k contributions. It's a terrific way to cultivate good habits going forward. Once people make changes to their 401k plans, whether their savings or their investment choices, oftentimes they just let those decisions ride. And in this case, that can be a really good thing. Now, another habit that you suggest people consider is building policies around their investments and their financial plan. What do you mean by policies? Well, this is the idea of really articulating what you're trying to achieve with your investments. So I'm a big believer in everyone having what's called an investment policy statement, where you are enumerating your approach to your investments, your asset allocation plan, notably how often you will revisit that plan and when you'll make changes, what will be the triggers for those changes. That's such a valuable way to enforce discipline in your plan. Many people have a little bit of extra time on their hands these days, so I think it's a great time to think about putting an IPS in place. And we have a template for an investment policy statement on Morningstar.com. For retirees, I like the idea of creating a retirement policy statement where you are spelling out your approach to decumulating your portfolio, how much you'll withdraw from it each year, where you'll go for the cash on an ongoing basis. We have a retirement policy statement template as well. I think that's a healthy habit to get into with respect to your investment plan and your financial plan, because if you've taken the time to create a policy statement, you probably won't override it, and that can lead to healthy habits down the line. And the last habit that you suggest we pursue, we pursue right now is maybe a little bit more mundane, but still important. And it's the idea of getting organized. What, what, give us some ideas for how to do that. <laughs> right. We've all been spending more time in our houses. So it's easy to see areas that we know we want to work on, things that we'd like to look better, function better for us. So I'm a big believer in people having an organized approach to their financial lives. It's super easy to let all that paperwork pile up. So it's a great time to create a system 
that can keep you organized on an ongoing basis. And if your paperwork is organized, and even if it's not physical paperwork, if your financial accounts are organized, I think it just makes it easier to see if you're on track with your financial life. So get in place a plan for what you'll save, where you will turn to your financial providers to supply you with documents and check up on how good their record keeping is. It's just a great time to look at having a total system for managing your financial documents on an ongoing basis. An important part of this is creating a system that is understandable to your loved ones. If they need to pick up and run with the plan, for example, or they need to identify important documents, lay all that out where they can find everything. And I like the idea of everyone having what's called a master directory to help show what you've got, where you've got your holdings, and uh, where people can retrieve important documents if they need them. Well, Christine, thank you for your time today and really giving us some practical advice of some money habits that we can start to pursue right now from our very own homes. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. Now, Damian Conover puts a spotlight on the most undervalued industry in the healthcare sector. So we're looking at the healthcare sector today and in the backdrop of a major market pullback due to the coronavirus, I think it's important to note that there are some defensive attributes of healthcare. So while the whole market has come down about 6% over the last 12 months, healthcare has only come down about 3%. And I think that's showing some of the defensive characteristics of healthcare. And I'd like to highlight three key points for our outlook for healthcare. First has to do with the coronavirus, and it has to do with the coronavirus in the near term. So in the near term, what we're anticipating is the coronavirus is going to make a lot of people very, very sick. And these very sick folks are going to start to crowd out some of the more elective procedures and likely new drug launches that just won't get the attention of doctors or patients. So in the near term, the coronavirus will have somewhat of a dampening effect on healthcare overall. On the long term, so this is the second key point, is the long-term impact of the coronavirus. We anticipate that by 2021, the coronavirus will have receded in its impact and we will start to see growth move back toward normal. We think that's largely due to governments enforcing social distancing and importantly, new drug and vaccine treatments that will come out that will largely help us put the virus behind us. The third key point that I think is important to keep in mind when thinking about the healthcare space is what's happening in the U.S. healthcare policy debate. You know, this has taken a little bit of a backseat to the coronavirus, but it's important. And what we've seen lately is that it's very likely that the Democratic nominee for president will be Joe Biden, and he brings a much more uh, a much more moderate approach to reform in healthcare. And we think that'll likely help the managed care organizations and the drug manufacturers which have been under some pressure over concerns about major policy reform. In aggregate, we see the healthcare group undervalued by close to 15%, with the drug manufacturers representing the most undervalued industry within the healthcare sector. A couple of names that we think are, are significantly undervalued are Pfizer, very diversified, should be able to weather the storm of the coronavirus, Roche, Similarly to Pfizer, has a lot of diversification in areas of unmet medical need, which should hold up particularly well. 
Lastly, Biomarin also looks significantly undervalued. And this is a company focused on rare diseases, which again should hold up very well. So in aggregate, while there have been some pressures from the coronavirus, we think that these pressures will uh, be more mild over the long term. And we anticipate the US policy environment to be less critical toward the drug manufacturers and managed care organization. In aggregate, we see healthcare undervalued with the drug manufacturers as the most undervalued uh, industry within the group. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long view with Morningstar's new podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Next, Eric Jacobson explains why today's market situation is different than it was in 2008. Hi, I'm Karen Wallace from Morningstar. Sharp losses and volatility in the bond market have a lot of investors wondering if we're living through 2008 all over again. I'm here with Eric Jacobson. He's a senior analyst covering fixed income strategies on our manager research group with some thoughts on that. Eric, thanks for being here. Hi, Karen. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, Eric, with the exception of the long government category, most bond categories have fallen hard over the past few weeks. Is, you know, if this isn't 2008, what's different this time? Well, Karen, there are a few things that are pretty different from 2008 in today's situation with the market. One of them is that there were a lot of funds going into 2008 that were taking on a lot more risk and risks that today we would probably even consider kind of extreme. They had leverage, they were layering on credit derivatives and so forth. And you know, even though it wasn't a huge number of funds, it was kind of a formula for disaster. Another issue that we have too is that um, that was that crisis was not only a liquidity crisis but also a solvency crisis there were a lot of things that funds held uh that that were at risk of of default and some did default and there was a lot of damage done in the underlying markets this time around so far what we've been looking at is really just a liquidity risk and it's the one that the fed has stepped in and and really managed pretty well by funneling money into the system so there's a really good chance that when all is said and done Investors probably aren't going to suffer permanent losses as a result of defaults and so forth, but we've obviously had a ton of market volatility. So, Eric, would you say that a silver lining in this crisis is that the banking system is better? I really do think so, that the banking system is better off than it had been. Um, There are a lot of lessons that went unheeded after the financial crisis. But one of the most important that was addressed was that the banking regulators stepped in They built up banking rules and what have you. And most of all, they encouraged and sort of pushed banks to have much better capital cushions. And as a result of that, today, the banking system is not at the center of this crisis and, in fact, is well positioned to be a, uh, a tool to help solve it. In fact, we've heard rumors that um, the Fed and regulators have tapped the banks on the shoulder and said, listen, uh, your capital buffers are good and we're not going to give you any trouble if you look to take on some more capital risk to help us keep the markets fluid and liquid. And as a result of that, uh, you know, the banks didn't perform as well as they had in the years before the financial crisis over, say, the last 10, because they were being more careful. But going forward, they're probably going to make a ton of money off of this, to be honest with you. Okay. Eric, thanks so much for being here to help us make sense of this. I'm glad to be with you, Karen. Thanks for having me. 
For Morningstar, I'm Karen Wallace. Thanks for watching. And lastly, Ed Slot encourages investors to consider converting their IRA. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar.com. If there's a small silver lining in the recent market slide, it's that converting traditional IRA balances to Roth may cost you less in taxes than would have been the case even a few months ago. Joining me to discuss that topic is Ed Slot. He's a tax and retirement planning expert. Ed, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Christine. Great to be here. And let's talk about the benefits of converting from a traditional to a Roth IRA. Why would I want to consider that? Well, because it's all a play on the tax rates. But now you have another factor, as you mentioned, values are low and tax rates are low. That's the perfect scenario for a Roth conversion. If you believe both will go up, and I do believe both the market will go up, and there's no question the tax rates will go up. I mean, they just spent $2 trillion. You know, I don't know if you saw, unlike other bills, uh, there were no revenue offsets in this bill. In other words, there's a part where they say how they're going to pay for it. That's out the window. There's just no way they're going to pay for it other than, I think, future tax increases. Plus, we're already scheduled after 2025 for tax, the current low tax rates we have to be increased back up to the prior levels. So you have a good situation now, as you said, a silver lining where if you have the money, Remember, you still have to pay tax on the conversion, and given what's going on in the world, you have to reassess whether you can afford to pay the tax. Because, as you recall from a couple of years ago, tax law, there's no uh, uh, there's no do-overs with Roth conversions. Once you once you convert, you will owe the tax. So first, make sure after you first evaluate it and believe you may uh, really see a benefit here with low rates and low values, make sure you project the tax bill and you have the money or you will have the money by tax time next year to pay the bill. So a question I think people might be mulling right now is you're saying to compare your current tax rate to the future, but if my retirement is many years into the future, if I'm a retirement saver with, say, 20 years until retirement, how do I begin to get my arms around this issue about whether my tax rate today is lower than what it could be when I withdraw well, the money in retirement? Well, tax rates historically today are the lowest they've pretty much ever been in anyone's lifetime. There's no question about that. And I also think there's no question that tax rates in the future will have to be higher. Uh, remember, the Roth conversion works if your tax rate in the future is at least the same or higher than it is now, then you get that benefit. So what's the downside? Let's say you converted and your tax rate is turns out to be lower. It's not going to be lower than 0%. That's your worst case scenario. You're at a 0% tax rate on the Roth money. That's locked in. So I don't think there's much risk there. Again, if you're comfortable paying the tax up front, I think this is a, a great time, a very opportune time to take advantage of you know, some terrible situations. Well, one is the low values, but one other good situation is the low rates. The combination of two makes for a, a good Roth conversion strategy. So when you say make sure you have the taxes, that means you'd want to have those funds external from the IRA. Right. You wouldn't want to have to pull out extra. 
exactly right. It doesn't work as well as if, if you have to take it out of the money you're converting. It's just not efficient. Uh, so you would have to have other money. You don't have to, but I would say pay the taxes from other funds and have those funds available. You may even want to start maybe looking at your projected tax rates and you don't have to convert everything. Most people hear this, they say, oh, I don't want to convert, it's a big tax bill. So convert enough to use up at least the lower tax brackets. If you don't use them, they're wasted. You don't get them back next year. So it seems like this would be a spot to get some tax advice, um, potentially consider a series of these conversions over a period of years. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling people. Do a start a series of smaller annual conversions using up these lower uh, brackets and rates while they're here. Okay, Ed. Good topic. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here with us today. Okay, thanks, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar.com. We hope you've enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.